from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Aaron Emmel on October 28, 2013. Aaron is a Baha'i and author. His most recent work is called Human Rights in an Advancing Civilization. Aaron is also the author of Taking Action in a Changing World, which is a handbook for positive social change. As well, he has authored a graphic novel called Sanjan, with illustrations by Aaron Creeder. He also helped edit a compilation called On the Front Lines, which has interviews and essays about teenagers and college students who are changing the world. We discuss all these works in the interview. Aaron's day job is to help government agencies and national and international organizations develop and implement policies on international security, international development, innovation, and human rights. I started the interview by asking Aaron where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Hing Springs, New Mexico, a small town in the mountains, and it was an incredible place to grow up. I had the mountainside and river valley as my backyard, and I had a lot of really creative friends, and we loved to explore the world and the environment and explore ideas. And when I was in high school, my family and I moved to Belize, and so I graduated from high school in Belize in Central America, and I therefore have kind of a mixed perspective of both the United States and the developing world. And what was spiritual life like growing up? I think that I always explored. I think, I guess the first question for me would be, what does it mean to have a spiritual life? And I think there are a lot of things that I think of when I think of what a spiritual life might mean, and one of those things is a quest, a search for truth, and a questioning. And in that sense, I was always questioning, I was always trying to look for things. One of my earliest memories was when my mother had me in daycare, and the person who was watching over us had told us about the devil, this creature that lived under the ground. And so since she had told us about this creature, I wanted to find out who it was, and I wanted to explore it. So I started digging in her backyard, and some of her kids came up to me and asked, what was I doing? And I told them I was looking for the devil under the ground. And so they ran away screaming, and I ran after them with my toy shovel, waving my toy shovel and telling them that they should help me, they should help me find the devil, and so that they could see what what was under the ground. And after coming out and seeing me running after the kids with my toy shovel, saying this, the person whose house it was at decided she would not uh, babysit me anymore. <laughs> so that was, that was the end of that particular experience. And I, um, since then, have not tried to have a similar pursuit. But when people have told me things, I've always tried to figure out what they were and try to understand them. I obviously had no idea what I was looking for. I simply right. knew she had mentioned something, and I wanted to just know what it was. Right. So at home, was there any kind of religious practice going on? Yes, so my parents were both Baha'is. They had both become Baha'is before I was born. So I grew up knowing about the Baha'i faith. I also grew up close to several Indian pueblos, 
And so I grew up learning about those practices as well and Native American practices of the Southwest. And I also went to the church. There was a Catholic church and a Protestant church in our village. And with my friends, I often, when I would spend the night over the weekends, in the mornings I would go with them to the Protestant church. And later when I was in high school, I went to, in, in Belize, I went to a Jesuit college, St. John's College. And so I had lessons in the catechism, and we went to Mass, and, and I had that whole set of experiences as well. But my family at home were Baha'is. One of the Baha'i teachings is an individual's investigation of truth, and the story you shared was very much a, a testimony to that kind of search. But I was wondering at what point did you consider the Baha'i faith your spiritual path versus the spiritual path of your mother and father? I had always identified with it growing up, and one of the things about being a Baha'i, I kind of intimated that before, is that I was also exposed to a lot of different beliefs, a lot of different practices. And so because of that, even though I had, I knew the most about the Baha'i faith, and I, of course, my family associated with that, I felt very comfortable exploring other things and other, dis- other spiritual disciplines, I guess you could call them. And it also means that I had a pretty good sense of the other things that were out there. There were other things like Hinduism I didn't really get to explore depth until I went to India later when I was in college. But a lot of the different religious experiences in the United States I had an opportunity to explore. And so on one hand I would say I have a pretty I had a pretty good sense of on a superficial level of what was out there. On the other hand, even now many years later I'm still exploring and I'm still learning things and so I wouldn't say that I have mastered or grasped any particular religion. But I certainly had an, an interest in in experiencing and exploring. When we moved to Belize, it was when I was between my junior and senior years of high school. We had visited the year before, and then that year, before my senior year of high school, we moved down. And going, moving to another country really gave me the opportunity, and I think it gives a lot of people the opportunity, to consider who they want to be. Because when you grow up in a certain place, you have, in a sense, your society, your culture, everything is decided for you. You may be a minority religion, such as I was, but you are still part of an overall intellectual and cultural climate. When you move to an entirely different place, you have to decide who you want to be when you're going to be there. And so even though I had thought in terms of what is my faith, what are my thoughts, what am I searching for, before that, that was a time where I really had to decide and decide on my own who I wanted to be in a place entirely moved in the context of where I was. And it's interesting because in one sense, that can happen anytime you travel anywhere. But at that time, it was long enough ago that moving to another country really meant leaving what you knew behind. Because now we're much more connected with the Internet. There are very few places where you can really get away from everything. But at that time, moving there really meant I was having a whole new set of friends. I was having a whole new set of social circumstances. We ended up driving down, which was also an experience in and of itself that allowed me to it allowed me to have the transition and to really see everything geographically between the place I was leaving and the place I was going to. We drove all the way down through Mexico. And that experience allowed me first it was the experience of change and transition in and of itself, but it was also I had the opportunity to explore 
and read and think every single night in a new hotel room in a new city. And one of the things I did during that time was I read the, there was a compilation at that time of the writings of Baha'u'llah that had been translated into English at that time. And during that trip, I read, I believe, the whole, that whole book cover to cover. And I read other things as well. And I played my guitar. And I just, I, I had the opportunity for a lot of thought. And so by the time I came to belief, I was able to say, this is who I want to be and what I want to be doing. And I had other experiences um, during that trip as well, but I think that's a good initial answer. So what did you do after high school? So I took a semester off to spend some more time in Belize. I went to um, other places to visit friends in the United States and did a lot of things. I took a semester off. I went to college in New Mexico. I then transferred to college in Hawaii and had a lot of wonderful experiences there and ultimately went on to start a business back in New Mexico. And what was that? I started with my partner and I, we started an online music store. And after about six months using that revenue, we started a record label. And we ran that, I ran that exclusively for five years and then served as an advisor for several more years. And we ended up selling those businesses in 2000, I believe it was 2003, for the online store, and we sold the record label in 2007. And why did you do that? A lot of reasons. Um, one reason was because the music industry was changing, and up until that point, I had a pretty good sense of what our strategic vision was going to be one in five years ahead, and we reached a point where I didn't really know what was going to happen five years ahead. A lot of the places that we worked with our partners both in the web, which have just seen a huge implosion of companies in the dot-com bust, but also in the music industry was in a steep decline as well. And so it seems like the fact that we were doing well and making money and have the opportunity to sell were things we should take advantage of. But more specifically, I also had studied policy and I wanted to get into policy. And I knew that I was at a point where if I didn't make that transition then, it would be much more difficult later to move into foreign policy, which is what I had wanted to do. So it was a confluence of, of things that made that the right decision for that time. And so did you go into uh, that kind of work right away? I did. So I started off working with refugees. I've worked with human rights. I've worked with international development. I've worked with global health. I've mostly worked with international and national organizations working that have some global or international foreign policy perspective. So I've worked a lot with the United Nations and other international organizations, but most specifically and directly working with the U.S. government and other U.S.-based organizations. And also, I'm a writer, as you know, and so I, during all of these processes, I was publishing and editing and writing. Yeah, so we'll get into your work uh, shortly. I'm eager to do that. Now, when you say foreign policy, is this more like foreign foreign aid? So, yeah, so that is the most recent um, policy work that I've done. So I've done a lot of work with foreign aid, and specifically within foreign aid with global health and other development sectors. I have also done work on U.S. refugee policy, on U.S. human rights policy, and also to some extent on security policy, which falls at the cross-section of several of those other issues. My graduate degree is in 
terrorism and substate violence and international security more broadly. Yes, security policy sounds very different from those other areas. It is, and you know, it's it's in some ways it's different, and in some ways it's not. So it's different in some in one obvious way in the fact that there are actually some spheres where you can't actually cross from being an employee of one organization to another. For example, if you work in the intelligence industry, you are not usually welcome in working in the development industry, for example. Mm. So there are certainly lines, but on the other side, a lot of those things, they all come out, they all come out of the same nexus of, of issues, if you will. So when people are... So the first, the first policy issue I worked on was refugees, and so that's obviously a humanitarian field, but people are refugees because they are from, from something. And so there are, geogra- there are Security issues, different yeah. reasons people become refugees, but one of the reasons and the reasons that we worked with were people who were refugees for reasons of persecution. And mm-hmm. so they were being targeted by the state. They were at risk of torture, of arbitrary detention, of execution in some cases. Mm-hmm. And so those were international security concerns, which ended up having a humanitarian crisis as a result. And so a lot of the humanitarian work that I've done has really come out of political and security failures. I'm sure you've documented this in your works that you've published, Mm -hmm. but just in general, how would you say the Baha'i faith has informed your attitude toward these issues of refugee policy or security policy? Maybe that might be a little bit different than what others in your field might have. That's true, and I, I like the fact that you asked about my particular attitude, because I think that the things that I have done are probably not unique. I think that there are many other people who have done the same things that I did or made similar choices, and in many cases carried them out more effectively, perhaps. But my perspective is certainly informed by my world. My perspective is my worldview, and my actions were certainly informed by that worldview. One of the, in kind of, I'll give a, a broad example and a specific example. In terms of a, a broad example, when I look at issues, I, I certainly look from a cross-cultural perspective. I'm concerned about all, all the players that come to the table, and that's certainly not unique. There are many organizations that do that, there are many people who do that, but that is certainly something which I shared being behind, is trying to be as inclusive as possible, hearing from as many different perspectives as possible. My question would always be, do we have traditionally disenfranchised groups at the table? Are we making sure that we are considering gender and the advancement of women in these particular issues? Things like that, which, again, certainly not unique to me, but part of the perspective that I brought, I think, because of my particular worldview. To give a very specific example, I'm dealing with politics in Washington. And there was a resolution that I was working on with, there was a bipartisan resolution with uh, leader from the Republicans in the Senate and a leader, a leader of the Democrats in the Senate. We were both uh, we were jointly working on a resolution. And one of the staff members mentioned that they had never worked with the other office before. And they were both a long time. They had both risen up to, I mean, both of these senators had risen up to leadership positions. And so the fact that during all that time, they had never actually worked together before working on this particular issue was kind of staggering to me, and I thought, well, 
even if the resolution doesn't pass, fortunately did pass, but I thought even if nothing else comes out of it, hopefully just the fact that these people who work in the same institution are now working together and talking together might be a slight improvement for the system. So, and again, that's, that's not unique. I think there are many people who try to build bridges, but certainly I have seen it as one of my goals to build those types of bridges. All right. Well, let's get into some of your published work. I don't know what the chronology is, but I guess why don't we start with your most recent work? You wrote a book called Human Rights in an Advancing Civilization. Yes. Maybe you could tell me what the uh, premise of the book is. Sure. So this is a book that my publisher, that publisher George Ronald, had asked for for some time. And Originally, when they had asked for a book on human rights, my response had been that there are many books on human rights, so they don't really need a new one. And so I had nothing else to say about it. And once a year or so, for a few years, they would ask again, hey, have you thought about doing this? And I kept saying, no, I had nothing to say. And then I was at a human rights conference, and I was listening to the speakers talk about human rights. And I realized, actually, I do have a lot to say about mm-hmm. it. And I think there were a couple things which ended up compelling me to write this book. One reason was simply the culturally relativistic mindset that many people approach human rights with, and my perspective is very different. My perspective was that there are certain ideas and standards which cross cultures, and so saying that every single culture brings something important to the table, that every culture is valid, doesn't necessarily mean that every single action is relatively is equally valid. It simply means that every culture has something important to bring to bear to the discussion. And so it was to have a different discourse about human rights. That was one of the reasons that I started writing it. But that led to a broader issue, which is kind of, I guess, the more immediate reason why I wrote the book, which is that people can have discussions about human rights and talk about entirely different things or from entirely different points of views, which in one sense, it's a good thing, because it means that it is a very open and international dialogue. On the other hand, though, it means that people can use the word human rights to talk about and justify pretty much everything. And so once you are using human rights to describe everything which people might value, in a sense, you're not actually having a discussion about human rights per se. You're just having a discussion about what you particular, in particular think is important. And so my goal in writing this book was not to say there is a particular way of looking at human rights, which is the best way. But it was to say that there are certain logical approaches to human rights, and if you have certain premises, then certain conclusions may follow. And so it was, so the purpose then became to look at the history, the evolution of ideas about human rights, to figure out how we have gotten here, how we've ended up in the discourse we have today about human rights, so that even if people end up with different points of view or disagree, they can articulate and understand what it is they actually mean, what they're looking for, and why they happen to agree or disagree with some part of the human rights conversation. And so, really, it's my hope that someone reading this book can just think about and speak about human rights in a kind of more nuanced and coherent fashion. As I was writing the book and thinking about those things, there were certain ideas which really emerged from that, and one is that Human rights have, the ideas of human rights have expanded and really kept pace with our views of community. 
what that means is that as human history has gone on, people in general have expanded what they think of as being part of their community. And the discussions about human rights have really evolved in tandem with that broadening of community. And the implication of that also is that societies change and communities change and our ideas about human rights change. And our ideas about what it means to be human, what it means to be a member of the community also changes. So when you have a discussion about human rights, you're really having a discussion about what it means to be a member of a community or the human community. And when you talk about what it means to be a member of this community, you are also, in a sense, having a discussion about human rights. So that's the basic thesis of the book. So from what you're telling me, there's a, a, a historical retrospective of the idea of human rights, and then you spoke of the cultural relevance of the human rights concept. I was wondering if you could give an example of, and I guess you're referring to maybe the changing attitudes of human rights over the years, and maybe our concept of what community is. Is that certainly? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think yeah, that is a much better, more succinct way of saying it. So the book is divided into three parts. The first section is just a straight history. This is how ideas of human rights have evolved. The second section of the book considers contemporary social issues, such as international security, such as international development, through the perspective of human rights. And the third section of the book, the shortest, tries to consider where we will go in the future, what human rights might look like moving forward. And so one example of the evolution of human rights was moving tandem in one sense, and I'll just give a snapshot of one particular time when the Spanish Empire was expanding across the globe, and the Spaniards were encountering cultures they'd never encountered before. And I think that the main takeaway of that expansion was that they treated the cultures they came in contact with horribly. <laughs> and um, we know, certainly living in the Americas, we know that the population and the cultures in the Americas were really decimated by their encounter with the Spanish for reasons which were both intentional and um, non-intentional, unintentional. At the same time, however, these encounters with new people also forced a lot of the people who thought about such things in Spain to start reconsidering what it meant to be Spanish, what it meant to be Christian, what it meant to be human. And so a lot of our ideas and a lot of the norms of international law and how nations should behave towards each other actually emerged from some Spanish thinkers during that time. And a lot of the first and most compelling arguments that we might consider to be modern human rights arguments were made by members of the, the Spanish conquistadors, of the clergy, who came to the Americas, saw the enslavement of Indians, and realized that there was no right or justification, either in the secular, or actually at that time there, was, there really was no secular thought, but in, in, in the broader European philosophical context, or in the particular specific Catholicism that Spain practiced. There's no justification for treating the Native Americans they encountered in the way they're being treated, and they realized they had to come up with new ways of relating to the Natives. And so that's just one very specific example of how thoughts evolved over time. 
Do you have a, a more recent example in history? During the Abu Ghraib controversy in Iraq, one of the biggest concerns for the United States military during that episode was, first, I mean, obviously, the tragedy and atrocity of what had actually taken place, um, what was actually taking place in the prison. But there was also a huge question of legitimacy. There are many, many, many reasons why a modern military wants to be seen as a legitimate actor and not just a bunch of hooligans. Um, but something very specific was that the al-Qaeda in Iraq, in their statements, said that they were actually moderating their behavior because they saw the American military having certain human rights standards. And basically, they realized that they were turning away the population. They were turning off the people. They wanted to come to them and have fight the Americans by some of the ways that they were um, torturing and harming members of the community. And so even with all the negative press and the negative attention that the U.S. military was getting, the fact that the military was trying to hold itself to certain standards actually caused the people they're fighting to rise to, and I don't want to say high standards, but, I mean, no, but they, certainly, no. they certainly lifted their standards. Yeah, and I remember book, that. In yeah. the Human Rights Book, I have some very specific examples of what the al-Qaeda groups decided they would no longer do because they wanted to show that they were legitimate. If people want to get your book, where can they find it? I guess the easiest way to get it is uh, through Amazon. Okay. If they go to my website, AaronEmmel.com, and here's a blatant plug, I also have links <laughs> to other places where they can find my book. Now, what Baha'i principles would you say informed your attitudes that you describe in the book? I can go through a few. I guess one of them is the idea that there is a global community that all humans should be treated equally. That is obviously a principle which is shared with many groups, with many cultures, and it is obviously a foundational Baha'i principle. I mentioned specific ideas such as the advancement of women, such as inclusivity of various groups, of reaching out to groups and people who have been marginalized or disenfranchised. All of those are examples of very specific Baha'i principles. More broadly, though, the concept of human rights is explicitly described in the Baha'i texts. The Baha'i texts are, it's the first religious text to explicitly refer to human rights with modern human rights language, although it's also worth mentioning, um, since since I'm saying that, it's also worth mentioning that the modern concept of human rights emerged from the Catholic tradition and from an attempt to describe the modern world from a Catholic perspective and also drawing on um, Greek thought. One of the other ideas of human rights, I mentioned the idea that cultures and societies evolve, and that is also a Baha'i principle, the evolution of society. And so the, the full text, of the, I'm sorry, the full title of the book is Human Rights in an Advancing Civilization. The idea that civilization advances is a Baha'i principle as well. And evolution, of course, is a spiritual principle. It's a religious principle. It's not exclusive to one religion, but it is a principle of religion that things evolve, that they change. The non-religious, I guess you could say the secular 
perspective of physical evolution is differentiation and speciation. It's the idea that there are changes that take place and that you can't exist in the world without changing. And so that is also a religious principle. The religious or spiritual overlay to that principle is that there is a, there's progress, there's a direction to that change, and that is what makes it evolution rather than simply change. And so the entire premise of the book, which is that it is possible or desirable or inevitable that there will be a transformation is towards something better and more inclusive and more collective. That is a religious or a spiritual principle. And so your book then reflects a, a positive outlook toward the future. Absolutely. And I'm not sure if anybody would get that by opening a page at random. <laughs> you know, it's very easy to look back at history and see things as clear demarcations. So we can say, for example, wow, the speaking of human rights, one of the great foundational documents of human rights was the Declaration of Human Rights which was one of the accomplishments of the United Nations, one of the early accomplishments of the United Nations. And so looking back, we can see this is a really remarkable accomplishment, and clearly there was progress. A lot of these ideas had been discussed and batted around around the world, and now suddenly there's this collective engagement by countries around the world to explicitly put these down as our aspiration as human beings. At the same time, when you're actually living through that period, the reason we got that document is because everybody had just lived through World War II and seen really horrible things happen. So, <laughs> so the book is very optimistic, but it describes that optimistic path by talking about a lot of the bad things that have taken us here. So you also published something called Taking Action in a Changing World. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So that is a book on community development and social action more broadly. It was a very explicit attempt to apply some of the principles that I've been talking about to social action and to community development and to ultimately building organizations that can help create lasting change. And so the book goes through an introductory section where it talks about what principles and we might want to apply to social action initiatives. Then it talks about given people who have been able to affect positive change. And then it goes through some very practical step-by-step um, guides to actually building an organization and becoming engaged in some of the activities people might want to be involved in. So when we're talking about taking action, what are you referring to? At a very simple level, the book talks about people who promote positive change in their communities. And so one one of the examples in the book is a, is a community in California that helped create a project called Voicemails for the Homeless. These were individuals who recognized that one of the problems that homeless people had had at that time before the um, ubiquitous age of cell phones, that at that time people had had a problem getting jobs because they didn't have a permanent location to direct employers to. And so this was a service to work with local phone providers, to uh, phone service providers, to provide free voicemail accounts for people who are homeless and they could help get jobs to find work. 
So that's an example of a particular initiative. And then the book goes then all the way through to long-term sustainable organization building to apply those types of ideas to a large number of people over time. And so one example of that in our area, or my area of Washington, D.C., is the Tahrir Justice Center, which is profiled in the book, which works to protect immigrants and refugee women who are fleeing violence, gender-based violence. So what inspired you to write the book, Aaron? A few things. One thing was living in Belize. And in Belize, we had development experts come and speak to us. And one development expert, he was prominent in his field. He had come to help some people in Belize get some projects off the ground. And his comment was that Belize was not developed enough for his development ideas to work in. And so my response to that was that if police wasn't developed enough for those ideas to work in, then maybe the problem wasn't necessarily police, it was those ideas. And so for me, the question became, what are some ideas and approaches that work in a variety of places that aren't just imposed from outside or from academia, but can help people to transform their own communities and their own lives? And... I also had the opportunity to, later when I was thinking about that, to be involved in a committee and some other activities which allowed me to survey and write about and edit community development projects across the United States. And that gave me a lot of insight and a lot of experience into what was actually going on, what was working, what wasn't working. Another book that you wrote, which is quite different from the other two, was a book called Sanjan? Sanjan, yes. Can, how do you pronounce that, Aaron? Well, I am not a native Persian speaker, so I will not be pronouncing it correctly either, but <laughs> I understand that I should be pronouncing it Sanjan. Sanjan, okay. Yes. So that is my Americanized version. Of yeah, Persian. well, it was, it's Sanjan. closer than what I had. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your book, Sanjan. Sure, so... Just like my latest book, my human rights book, Zan John came about from someone who I respected encouraging me to write a book. And in this case, that person was Aaron Crater, who is an award-winning and incredibly accomplished artist. And he had actually had the idea for a long time of writing a book that would showcase some of the aspects of body history the Babi faith being the precursor to the Baha'i faith in 19th century Persia, which is now Iran. Specifically, he was interested in looking at the Dawnbreakers, which was an eyewitness account and quotes of other eyewitness accounts to this huge social and spiritual and intellectual upheaval that was happening in the Middle East at that time. So he had been interested in doing a project, and apparently he had been speaking with other writers who could write a script, and nothing had really worked out up to that point, and he had seen some other comic books I had written, some other scripts I had written, so he asked me if I would be interested in working on this with him. And so I had lunch with him and his wife, and we started talking about some ideas, and immediately I loved his vision, I loved his ideas, and I jumped into some ideas of my own, and some of the 
basic plot elements emerged immediately from our first discussion over lunch. And one of his goals had been to fictionalize the story and to have it be historical fiction through the eyes of someone who had experienced, who, who might have experienced the events that he wanted to talk about. And so I was really excited about that. I am primarily a fiction writer. I Most of my published things are nonfiction, but my first love is fiction. And so I'm very excited about doing a fictionalized account that allowed me to really explore some themes in a really personal nature, and I wouldn't have been able to explore those ways otherwise. And the entire experience was just an incredible experience. Aaron is a fantastic person to work with. He's incredibly talented. And so we were able to collaborate in a way that was much more than the sum of the parts. And so I was able to say things or present things visually that I can't do when I'm working on a novel or a story on my own. And then to see him bring those ideas to life visually was really exciting and really stunning. Now, San John was a specific, I guess it's a name of a city, I suppose. But there was a specific event that occurred at the time of the Babi religion as it was revealed. And the prophet founder, the Bab, was, I believe, alive at the time. So maybe you could just, uh, without giving too much away on the book give us some background about the significance of Sanjan. Sure. So Sanjan, one of the reasons it lent itself to a story was because it was the site of a really big battle. And so basically what happened was, at this time, one of the religious leaders of the city, Sanjan, became a Bobby. And because he was such a prominent figure, the national government became very concerned. And so the king of Persia brought him to the capital to debate the clergy there. And everybody was very concerned because they were afraid that because such prominent people in the country were becoming Babis, that masses of people would become Babis after them. And in fact, that fear actually turned out to be well-founded because masses of people did end up becoming Babis. At a certain point, there was a struggle between, it actually started off as a struggle between some kids in the city, some kids who were Bobby and who were not Bobbies, and then that struggle flared, and the parents got involved, and adults got involved, and it was kind of actually a silly struggle, but it became the pretext for some of the, some of the leaders of the city to do what they had wanted to do anyway, which was use this as a way to clamp down on the Bobby movement. And so what they actually did was they went through the streets of the city saying that they were going to attack the Bobbies. And so anybody who remained in certain neighborhoods where there were many Bobbies were going to be killed or taken along with the Bobbies who were there. And so the officials of the city actually then forced the city to take sides and split apart. So what happened is that families were split apart neighbors left their neighborhoods, and the Babis fled the parts of the city that they had lived in, in some cases, and in, in some cases they, they remained where they were, in other cases they fled. They fled to one side of the city and took shelter in a fortress that was there and barricaded themselves, barricaded the streets around the fortress as the government forces in the city started attacking them. And 
the the book shows the escalation as the local forces were unable to defeat and dislodge the Babis who were in this fortress. They appealed for national help, and soon it became this national campaign where the king sent an army to try to destroy these defenders. In many cases, they were merchants, they were farmers, they were not soldiers, they were simply people who had been forced to take up to take up this defensive posture in this fortress. And again, and that is what actually happened. The story is told through the point of view of someone who is a fictional character. And then I guess the final piece of work is a compilation that I guess you edited with Heather Brandon called On, On the Front Lines? Yes. So that's actually my first book, and that was from a magazine that I edited. It was actually a magazine that was started by Heather and her husband, River. It was called One Magazine. It was a magazine for youth, and it was a really fantastic magazine. I did some writing for them, and their features editor was actually River's sister, I believe. The editor of the features ended up leaving to do something else, I believe, to go to school, and I had been a writer for the magazine that asked me to become the editor, uh, the features editor, and it was basically the a lot of the articles, both published and unpublished from that magazine, that then became the book on the front line. And it was basically a snapshot of all the various interesting and cool things that these teenagers and young adults were doing around the world at that particular time. How they were kind of coming of age and the types of issues they were grappling with at the same time that um, a lot of things were changing in the world around them, around the new millennium and things like that stuff. What do you think you want to do next, Aaron? So Aaron and I actually have a new project. We haven't publicly or formally announced it yet, so maybe this is the first time. I've, I've referred to it briefly on some social media posts, but we are actually in the midst of working on a game, an interactive science fiction novel that is going to go through Aaron's, Aaron and his wife Lisa's uh, publication company called Studio Nine. And so it's very different than anything I've mentioned so far, but also I, I think very exciting. And hopefully, even though it, it doesn't sound like a book on human rights or a book on human <laughs> development, I think there are some themes there which will resonate for anybody who's enjoyed my previous work. And it's really exciting. Aaron is a master game designer. He's a fantastic artist. And I've been uh, an amateur game designer for my entire life. And of course, a storyteller and a writer, and so this is a really exciting project for us. We're about halfway through, so it'll probably be a while before that's ready. I'm also working on a lot of fiction projects right now. I am talking to some editors. I don't have anything I can announce yet, but I I can say that whatever I have coming out next will be fiction. So is there any outline to the premise of the game that you can share, or is it too early? Oh, the outline is certainly there. I haven't actually spoken about sharing it publicly yet, but I, what I can say is it's a storyline about self-discovery begins with someone waking up in a post-apocalyptic... Actually, I, I was saying someone. It actually begins with an android um, being brought online into a post-apocalyptic world. 
and this person is not sure how they came to be here or what their purpose is. And part of the um, part of the beginning of this story is to discover what they're doing here and what what they're here to do, who they are, and what they're supposed to do. Is there a excerpt that you want to share from any of your works? Sure, I'd love to read something. So this is a passage from the end, the last chapter of human rights in an, in an advancing civilization but it provides kind of summary of a lot of the themes. It's a wrapping up period, which will provide a summary of a lot of the themes that are explored elsewhere in the book. Human rights cannot be contained by any particular set of laws because they apply to every culture and political system. They are expressed in our relationships and the responsibilities that we have to each other. Human rights are simple and practical things. The right to be free from arbitrary arrest and imprisonment, for example. Each of these simple boundaries protects the most important things in life. The ability to ask questions of the world around us, to exercise our will, to live. They are the rights that all people hold in common and which are necessary for us as people to thrive. Human rights defend the exercise of our responsibilities to ourselves and our communities. They refer to aspects of ourselves that are innate and so should not have to be justified. We are capable of being noble and do not have to explain why we should not be degraded. We have the capacity to think for ourselves, and so our ability to search for truth should not be suppressed. Human rights are based on universality, not on the assertion that everything that a person can ever do should be done which would allow everyone to infringe on the rights of everyone else, but that everything that a person should do should be accessible to all people equally. This is why the Universal Declaration was founded on the recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable, inalienable rights of all members of the human family. Yet it must also be acknowledged that, as the preceding pages have made clear, Many questions about human rights have not been settled. The existence of human rights, their universality, and the identification of certain essential rights have all been overwhelmingly agreed upon. The hardest, and perhaps most urgent, work has already been done. But the dialogue about the meaning of human rights and everything they must protect is far from over and will continue as long as we continue to evaluate who we are and who we want to be. So I heard you earlier, and I mentioned it, I think, before, about the idea of the cultural relevance in relationship to human rights. Did I, did I hear that right? Yes. So I was referring to cultural relativism, which is the idea that pretty much everything is okay as long as there's a culture which does it. That's a gross simplification, but that's one way of looking at it. But I think the idea of cultural relevance comes in, how I was looking at it was that although I am not a cultural relativist, I do believe that every culture has something to offer. And so in that sense, every culture is relevant to the discussion. And so there are countries, there are societies which are considered advanced or developed or undeveloped in the world. 
But another perspective, my perspective, is that every single culture has something to offer, just as every single individual has something to offer. And the fact that there are different approaches, different ways of looking at things and doing things is actually a strength, not a weakness. Yeah, I mean, this whole concept of advanced, quote-unquote, can uh, be argued, what does advanced really mean? Absolutely. And it depends on your metrics. So if you select certain metrics, certain countries will appear to be the most advanced. If you use different metrics, then other countries will appear to be more advanced. And there are certain things that we all aspire to. We all want health. We all want clean water. We all want prosperous lives. So those are things which are certainly universal. And so you can look at those things and say, it's certainly important to have those, and so we want to find out when certain countries or communities have them. Why? What are they doing? What allows them to have these particular benefits? But there are other benefits as well that also need to be looked at. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for sharing your story and your work with us. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to speak with you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Aaron Emmel, a Baha'i and author of Human Rights, in an advancing civilization, and also author of Taking Action in a Changing World, a handbook for positive social change, and a graphic novel called Sanjan, with illustrations by Aaron Creter. He co-edited the compilation called On the Front Lines, which has interviews and essays about teenagers and college students who are changing the world. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.